Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about Tennessee Republicans expelling two black legislators and the broader trend of fascist behavior by the right. I interviewed California Governor Gavin Newsom about his response to Ron DeSantis's authoritarian tactics and his new PAC seeking to bolster red state Democrats. And I'm joined by the president of the AFL-CIO, Liz Schuler, to discuss the major Senate hearing with former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz and the union movement in the U.S. more broadly. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So this past week, Tennessee Republicans expelled two of the three Democratic legislators who joined students protesting for gun reforms, the two being the black Democrats, while miraculously, the white Democrat was spared. Like, the racism is just unmistakable. I mean, seriously, we see racism all the time, but this one is is one of those few instances where it is so egregious, so pointed, that it legitimately feels like something out of the 1950s. Only the black Democrats were expelled. The white one got to stay. Like, it takes a lot to shock me. This shocked me. But I think what happened in Tennessee can be boiled down to this. Republicans managed to ban black lawmakers from serving in their democratically elected positions for speaking out on gun violence before they banned assault weapons after three kids got slaughtered in school. If that is just not the most damning indictment of a legislative body that you've ever heard. It's amazing what Republicans can do and the speed with which they can do it if they actually want to get something done. Expel a couple black legislators, give them a single day. But take some action, literally any action to curb gun violence after watching nine-year-olds get shot to death? Well, you see, now isn't the time to talk about solutions. Now is the time to mourn. Until, of course, we're far enough away from the shooting that there isn't any pressure to do anything anyway. In fact, it's not just that Tennessee Republicans aren't taking action on gun violence. They're actively working to loosen gun laws. There's a bill moving through the state Senate right now that would lower the minimum age for carrying guns from 21 to 18. The House version of that bill would allow for the open or concealed carrying of any firearm, not just handguns, AR-15s too. This is still in the process of being passed by Republicans even after this shooting. So if you're wondering what kind of people would expel lawmakers for the crime of standing with students who are protesting the inaction of legislators while their classmates are getting slaughtered, it's the kind of people who view their mandate here as to actually make it easier for people to get their hands on guns. Just utter insanity. And look, what happened in Tennessee isn't surprising. This is their playbook to a T. But the chilling part here is how this kind of behavior isn't isolated to just one state's Republican Party. In Texas, Republicans introduced a bill to ban polling places on college campuses because not enough students were voting for them. In Wisconsin, Republicans have floated the idea of impeaching newly elected Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz. In North Carolina, Republicans are looking to use their new supermajority to re-implement a gerrymander that the state Supreme Court already ruled was unconstitutional. Just abject fascism, a wholesale denial of democracy by a party that recognizes that their only path to survival is by ensuring that the majority of voters aren't able to make their voices heard. And that's the thing. Like, imagine taking all of these steps, all just to avoid adopting an agenda that someone might want to, oh, I don't know, vote for. Imagine your your principles, your platform being so horrible, so unpopular, and you being so married to that platform that is uh, horrible and unpopular that the only course of action here is just to ensure that you win because you cheated, because you rigged the system. Again, that is not democracy, it is fascism. And if you listen to this podcast and you watch my videos, you know that I don't throw that word around because I don't want to cheapen it, but we might as well call it what it is. And by the way, 
That agenda that they're rigging the system in service of, here's just a small sampling from the last few days. In Idaho, Republicans have passed a law preventing interstate travel for abortions. In Florida, DeSantis just loosened gun restrictions in a closed-door bill signing. Obviously, none of it popular enough to pass with the majority, and Republicans clearly know that, which is why all of this happens alongside their voter suppression efforts. But here is the silver lining, and there is a silver lining. In Wisconsin, basically a 50-50 state, a state that Democratic Governor Tony Evers won by a three-point margin and that Republican Senator Ron Johnson won by a one-point margin, so truly a toss-up state, the liberal candidate for the state Supreme Court, Janet Protasiewicz, won by 11 points last week. Why? Because abortion rights were on the ballot, because fair maps were on the ballot. And apparently, a really good way to mobilize people in a democracy is by trying to strip that democracy away. And so now, for the first time in 15 years, liberals control the court in Wisconsin, which may very well mean that if and when we see new maps, liberals may control the entire state legislature in Wisconsin. And even better, as far as this race is concerned, among students, their turnout was between 74% and 97% of general election turnout. That means they virtually matched turnout for a spring state Supreme Court race. That's quite literally unheard of. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, that turnout number was as high as 97% of fall turnout. At UW-Eau Claire, turnout was 91% of fall turnout. UW-Green Bay had 78% of fall turnout. And in those precincts, Judge Janet, the Democrat, or, or the liberal candidate, got 75 to 85% of the vote. Young people are turning out and they are voting for Democrats, which, by the way, is why Republicans are trying their hardest to restrict voting on college campuses. And that, I should note, is honestly the dumbest fucking thing I could think of because guess what happens to college students after a few years? That's right, they graduate and they leave that campus knowing that the only reason that their right to easily cast a ballot while they were in school was stripped from them is because of Republicans. Like, talk about losing the future. In fact, here's former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker identifying that young voters are the problem, and here's the excuse that he gives. A larger issue here, we've seen it particularly in Wisconsin, but across the country, is younger voters. In Wisconsin, last fall, we saw about a 40-point margin that younger voters gave to the Democrats running for Senate and governor. We saw similar margins in Pennsylvania. Part of the reason why you have John Fetterman in the U.S. Senate, in Arizona, in Georgia, and elsewhere. And just this week in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. we don't yet know the numbers by age, but we do know that Dane County, uh, which is where the University of Wisconsin's flagship campus is at, about 50,000 students are enrolled there, Dane County cast more ballots in the race for the Supreme Court than the largest county in the state, Milwaukee County. And in Dane County, 82% of those votes went for the radical. And so unless we turn young people around, and it's not as simple as one campaign ad or some sort of a coalition, this is years of liberal indoctrination coming home right. to roost, and we've got to turn it around if we're going to win again. Ah, yes, it's campus indoctrination. That must be it. Definitely doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Republicans are employing a literal fascist agenda, that they're banning books, that they're banning abortion, that they're banning interstate travel, banning medicine, banning drop boxes and polling places. No, it must be liberal professors. And in a way, while it's ridiculous, I listen to someone like Scott Walker and I'm actually relieved because their complete lack of self-awareness, their complete inability to correctly identify the problem means that they will continue to lose. And that was put on full display in Tennessee because while Republicans may have been able to expel those two legislators, uh, they sparked protests that have spanned days so far. They have woken up every young person, every black person, independent and pro-democracy Republican who might not have paid a moment of attention if it wasn't for the GOP's desperation to consolidate power. 
And now people are angry and they are mobilized and they are paying attention. So I hope that the fleeting victory for these Republicans, not just in Tennessee, but across the country is worth it for them because they've lost generations of people for themselves. And those people very clearly vote. Next up is my interview with the governor of California. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. All right, now we've got the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be with you. Now, you visited students in New College in Florida. That is the epicenter of Governor Ron DeSantis' efforts to reshape the state in his conservative mold. How are the students viewing this pretty blatant conservative indoctrination effort? Well, I mean, that's exactly what it is. They want to bring us back to a pre-1960s world, period, full stop. And you hear that loudly and clearly from faculty, staff. You hear it loudly and clearly from community leaders that we met with, not just the students themselves. They feel under assault. They feel anxious. Um, they feel uh, challenged in terms of just dealing with what they have to deal with every single day as being a young student, just trying to learn. Yeah. Um, they have parents in some cases that want them back home because they don't want them to be part of this fight. Others are doubting that they have the resilience and the strength to be part of this fight. Yet all of them are just bewildered that they're being used as a pawn in a political game to try to reshape higher education across this country and make no mistake. That's what this is about, period, full stop. This is a full-on assault of higher education and fr academic freedom. And this is about reshaping higher education, which many of these guys like DeSantis think is some damn establishment plot. Yeah. You know, the irony isn't lost on me either that uh, that this comes from a party that keeps uh, accusing everybody else of being groomers. And now they're trying to literally find young people wherever they can and just kind of indoctrinate them in their conservative worldview. I mean, remember that the, the ex-Republican Speaker of the House is the one dictating the terms now in New College. I mean, they don't even make any pretense. They say they want to make in mold and model. They've said this clearly, openly. Again, no one's hiding it. They want this to be the Hillsdale of the South. They want to create a Christian community here. I mean, it, it, and they've got all these national folks behind them, and they decided to take that because they're bullies. The one thing Ron DeSantis has in common, every, literally, think about it. Every single thing this guy does, he does with intention because he's 
a weak guy masquerading as if he's a strong guy. So he takes on the most vulnerable consistently, a 700-person college. He takes on, he has to find migrants in another state. I mean, just think about it. He goes to another state to find migrants under false pretense and sends them to an island. He decides to have his own police force and go out and arrest people uh, early in the morning in their underwear uh, because they filled out the wrong form. Everything this guy does, going after the LGBTQ community, going after, even trying to take, I mean, everything this guy does has that in common, trying to humiliate, try to bully other people. And this is consequential, though, because if he's successful here, it will have an impact and reverberate in other states and other institutions. And as a guy that you know runs the UC system and the CSU Board of Trustees, the greater conveyor belt for talent of public education, higher learning anywhere on the globe, this is a serious, serious moment. And that's why I'm here to call it out. And all of academia should be calling this out. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. Building on exactly that, uh, we just had a shooting in Nashville where three you know, young kids, nine-year-olds, uh, were killed there. Days later, Ron DeSantis would quietly loosen gun laws in his state. Can I have your response to that? It makes you sick to your stomach. Talk about, again, weakness masquerading as strength. He didn't even do a public event because he knows that it's not only, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people that he claims to represent in this freedom-loving state think this is shit crazy. I mean, the idea that regardless of any background, any issues, I mean, anything, you don't have any training, you don't have any background, anyone walk in with concealed carry gun, anywhere, in, I mean, he's this is insane. And as you suggest, the insanity only underscored and punctuated by the fact we had yet another shooting and three beautiful nine-year-olds just gunned down by these weapons of war, these platforms of mass destruction in states that don't even have the courage to have red flag laws that cut mental health, that cut programs to address the issues of crime and violence, and don't have the courage of suggesting that this was not the founding father's vision as they were there with their muskets going like this to shoot one bullet indiscriminately yeah. now to have these weapons of war as we saw 150 plus rounds in a matter of minutes taking people's heads off so they can't even get DNA. Now all they need DNA analysis to be able to identify these young, beautiful children. It's sickening what's happening. Ron DeSantis is probably the most effective communicator in this place, but he's not the only Republican governor that's advancing these principles, but he did it again uh, in a shameful way behind closed doors with the NRA behind him doing something that is absolutely inconsistent with protecting the freedoms and liberties of the people of the state of Florida. You know, you've been one of the only people in the Democratic Party who's been able to effectively call out uh, the violent crime rates in, in, these, in these red states, despite these red state politicians basically just calling out blue states as if, it's, as if crime is just a problem here. Uh, can you speak on that issue for a moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a state that has 28% higher uh, murder rate than the state of California. I'm here in the freedom-loving state of Florida. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Eight of the top 10 murder states in terms of uh, increase in murder rates are all red states. By the way, seven of the top 10 dependent states are those same states with lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality, maternal mortality, some of the worst health outcomes in the country. I mean, how the Democrats, I mean, look at their GDP rates, 60 plus percent of the GDP in this country are in blue states. How are we losing these debates? Yeah. How are we losing these debates? We got to go on the offense. We can't continue to be on the defense, and nor can we continue to focus exclusively, I say with love and respect, just on Washington, D.C. It's the United yeah. States of America, and there's 25, 26 states 
where people are in real peril of their rights being rolled back in real time, their liberties, their freedoms. It's happening. It's time to pay more attention. To that point, you have been out in Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama. So uh, not exactly these liberal bastions out here in the country, but you've got this new PAC, the Campaign for Democracy. What's the goal with this? By the way, they were liberal bastions. Don't forget, not that many years ago. Do you know in every one of those states, you had Democratic leadership in in, in their senates or their equivalent of their assemblies? Yeah. We had a up president in Arkansas. Exactly. Up, but up till 2010, they were in the majority. I met with all the Democratic caucus in, in both the lower and upper house in Alabama. They were reminding me they were still all there. They were the majority. They said just 15 years ago. And, and they're like, thank you for not giving up on us. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot more of us than there are of them, but our party is not focusing on these states. And so that's why I intentionally went to Jackson, Mississippi and met with the young and remarkable uh, mayor who's under full on assault by their state government that's trying to take over everything in there. And they can't even solve their water issues. They're selling fear and anxiety around crime and immigration, but total calm and indifference about safe and basic access to drinking water. And the fact, that we were in Mississippi is not lost on you and me, because I also then went to Arkansas, uh, where we win in, in places uh, like Little Rock that also had these extreme weather events, these tornadoes tearing the communities asunder. And, and so it's not just our politics. It's also what's happening with Mother Nature. And they sell, again, common indifference when it comes to climate change. So it's very frustrating in Little Rock, as you say, we had a former president there, but we have some remarkable local leaders and mayors and and state representatives that that they haven't given up yet. And I don't think our party should. So I'm just trying to highlight a little of that. And of course, Alabama, man, I, I was there. We went to Dr. King's house where he was pastor for six years on his 55th anniversary of his assassination. I was with Brian Stevenson. Oh my gosh, Brian Stevenson at the Legacy Museum, which just is, oh my, people should drop everything. Go, go to Alabama go to the Legacy Museum. I went to Rosa Parks Museum and was reminded, I had my four kids, no textbook would remind me of this. It wasn't that she just said no. It's everything she did and everybody did. 382 days during that Montgomery bus boycott. That's the real lesson there. And that was the lesson I was trying to talk to the kids here. It's not just standing up in terms of the impacts of what's happening at New College. It's the hard work that we have to do to create a movement around this change. And and I love these guys. They haven't, they haven't gotten the memo that it's over. They haven't gotten the memo that that Tucker Carlson's trying to shove down our throats every single day in the anger industry that is Fox and One American News and Newsmax. And that gives me some confidence, man, that we can figure this stuff out. I mean it. I'm like so excited about what we're capable of doing if we just don't give up on anybody, don't give up on these states. Yeah, and I think that's underscored, by the way, by the fact that we just saw, you know, the Wisconsin Supreme Court go uh, get flipped from red to blue. And we're watching, you know, these states where these Republicans traffic solely in extremism and just kind of shoot themselves in the foot because people people don't want it. And I don't know how many times Americans have to tell these politicians that they don't want it. They, they, they did it in 2018, 2020, 2022, and nothing's changing. They keep selling the same product. People keep refusing it. But, you know, don't interrupt your enemy while they're making a mistake, I guess. And I agree, by the way, 100% agree with you. And we also should be mindful how successful they are at the same time. And what I mean by that, maybe not through the prism of a national lens and not through the prism, obviously, the situational lens as it relates to the wonderful victory of the Supreme Court yesterday in Wisconsin, but they are rolling back rights in real time. 
yeah. on voting rights, on civil rights, LGBTQ rights. They're rolling back rights on abortion. They're rolling back rights on contraceptives. And they're doing it state after state. It's a full-on assault. These bathroom bills, the othering, the us versus them mentality, the trans community, the obsession with drag shows. And they're winning and they're scaring people into submission. And there's a hierarchy, a framework of power and dominance and aggression that they're advancing. And again, they're winning in these states. And they're also trying to nationalize these wins with the, you know, judge shopping in Amarillo, Texas, judge shopping down in San Diego, California, where we have a judge, Judge Benitez, who's likely going to throw out our assault weapons ban, obviously with the MIFI drug and the impacts that could have a medical abortion. So you're 100 percent right. But the prism to which I see the world is not always top down. It's also yeah. bottom up. And Dobbs obviously helped us in the midterms, but I hope we don't get lulled in to some semi-conscious, uh, well, you know, semi-confidence where we we lose consciousness of this rights regression that is happening across our country. You know, you're in these red areas. I don't know how much you've gotten to speak to Republican voters or Republican constituents, but I, I guess my question would be, if you are, how are they reconciling their allegiance to their political party, which in many ways is their identity, right? With a recognition, perhaps, that, that their party is sliding full tilt into, you know, authoritarianism. Hold on, functionally authoritarian. That was exactly, that was the exact words, not your words, not my words, that we heard from these students. By the way, one of those students answered that question for you. Uh, she said, I asked, how are your parents feeling about all this? And someone who was very timid, one of the last people to speak, she raised her hand. She goes, oh, my parents love Ron DeSantis, but they want me to leave the school because they can't believe this is happening. And and she said it's the first time they had to square that reality, that they like this guy. And they're like, wait, this is not good for you. It's creating a culture, creating anxiety. And we sent you there for academic freedom, self-directed education for all the creativity that that kind of freedom, academic freedom provides and the critical thinking, and they want her to leave. And so I think they're overplaying their hand. I know they're overplaying their hand. And I guess that goes to your earlier point. You know, if your enemy is screwing up, just get out of the way. I get it. But there's so much damage they're doing. There's so much vandalism to our rights and freedoms and liberties they're doing along the way. And that's why I'm on my way, you know, to continue this red state tour, to continue to call this stuff out, because I, I really feel the Republican Party, if they've done one thing effectively over the course of the last few decades, man, they're, they're, there's a, they, have, they have built institutions, they built muscle memory, they book bands and all this stuff. This didn't happen by chance. I mean, these guys are organized. And by the way, this whole new college thing, this is a national organized effort. They've been building for this. They were looking for a pond. They were looking for a target that they want to export. Democrats, we do a little of that, but we so fall in love so quickly. Guy or guy on the white horse to save the day. We're like, oh, there. And we're like, puppy dog, you know, and then it's like, oh, and then we 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 stop doing the hard work. And that's why I think it's really important. Bottom up, not just top down. And that was Obama's campaign, wasn't it? All these 35,000 self-organizing communities change starts the bottom up. Yes, we can. And that campaign mindset. We need to get into how we govern. And that's hard. I'm struggling with that as governor as well. But that's also functionally what I'm trying to focus our efforts on. Governor Newsom, what have you learned about the country during these stops? That uh, the fear and the anxiety and cynicism that so many of us have, you want the antidote? Just go local, man. Stand on your head, go local. These incredible things you're, you're seeing at the local level. 
I mean, I'm in Bentonville, I'm in Montgomery, I'm in Jackson, I'm I'm in the deep south, and I come back inspired, enlivened. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm here in Sarasota, Florida. I'm literally at the library in Sarasota, Florida, right next to New College. Just met with these kids. And I'm like, coming back, I'm like, so excited. And I'm like, I get to be governor. I get to do my job. I'm so much better person, I think, because of this experience. And and because and I feel a deeper sense of accountability, responsibility. We're not victims. We could shape the future. We're not victims. I heard that there was an activist. I love it. It was a huge room. And, and 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 she had lost her election and she says, we're not victims. And I'm like, oh my God. And then she got in my face. We can, you know, it's decisions, not conditions that determine our fate future. I'm like, yes. And then I'm like all pumped up and all these Democrats and we're like, yes. And it wasn't fake, man. It's not fake. It's real. And as long as those people are out there and we say to them, you matter, we have your back, man, we can inspire more of that. And, you know, I, I'm just, I didn't get the memo. I ain't giving up yet. I ain't giving up. You know, are people receptive to you out there because you're you're the governor of the biggest bluest state in the country. You're like the the king of the evil communist Marxist leftist. You know, so like, how do people how do people like respond to you out there? I'm also the governor of one of the largest rural state in America. I'm also the go- governor of the the biggest agricultural state in America, with more hunting jobs, with more fishing jobs, with more forestry jobs than any other state in America. I'm also the governor of the biggest manufacturing state in America. Um, It is all familiar to me. That said, yes, this bear does represent a lot to a lot of people. Uh, And uh, I know that as well or better than anybody else. So no, that's hard, right? I mean, that's, you know, the little humility. Um, I, I understand I have to win people over, including, by the way, I was with the Alabama Democrats are like, well, what are you doing out here? Why are you here? You got to, you got to, you got to win people over. I'm not naive about that. And uh, that's why I went to church before I was there. And just to be reminded, you know, this, these foundational principles all bound together by a web of mutuality, right? I mean, just we're all in this together. We're all better off. We're all better off. I sitting there listening to the library, the Clinton library. And he talked about, we celebrate all our interesting differences and it didn't end there. We celebrate all our interesting differences, listen to Clinton, comma, but we unite around the things that bind us together. And I just am reminded of that. That's that second part of the equation. Democrats, we need to talk more about what unites us together. Democrat, Republican, rural, urban, from one coast to the other coast, to the south and the north. You know, there is this fundamental interdependence, but there's also universal truths. We want to be respected, connected, protected. We want to love. We want to be loved. I mean, stop the politics, man. It's getting in the way of these human values that connect us all. And if I can find that, you know, versus the blue and the bear, um, then we find that space, that sort of magical space when we talk about our kids. Do you find that people are appreciative of you going into areas that a lot of us would consider forgotten areas or they themselves would even consider forgotten areas? I, I, when I hear politicians, I roll my I was like, you and everybody else rolls their eyes. Brother, it was off the charts how happy people were. I was like, wow, I didn't know. I was like, I mean, thank I was like, thank you for doing this. They're like, no, thank you. I'm like, why are you thanking me? Kind of did this selfish thing. I want to be helpful, but I also wanted to absorb and understand. And like, no, thank you. And it's, it's amazing. Just showing up, man. Show up. You know, and just listen and absorb, have a two-way conversation. Um, and uh, I'm so, I'm, 
you know, I, I'm doing this PAC. I know PAC, right? Everyone goes, oh, you're the politician of PAC. But, you know, I had all this extra money because they tried to recall me and I had to raise $84 million. I raised like $138 million in 18 months. And luckily, you know, after we beat the recall handily and was able to, to win my reelection, I had this big surplus. I'm like, what am I going to do with it? And I'm like, I love what DNC is doing. I love what Biden's doing. I love they're preparing for 2024, looking at the electoral map. I get that scarcity of time and resources. But I don't have a scarcity of time. And right now, relatively speaking, relative, I don't have a scarcity of resources. So how can I use them to the biggest effect and impact more people, more ways on more days in a way that's different and distinctive? And that's kind of the approach we're taking. We hope it's complementary. But in the old adage, once, you know, once a mind is stretched, I hope it never goes back to the original form. I hope we keep stretching the possibility for our party not to give up on Alabama, not to give up on the South. These are our voters, man. They need us. These are I mean, people The Republicans need us out there. Like you really, Medicaid, they're not even expanding Medicaid. Their rural hospitals are going out of business. It's mind blowing. I don't know who the hell these guys are representing. So they need us and we can't give up on them, these American people that many happen to be Democrats. A lot of them are Republicans. What was the decision-making process to go into these places that are deep red places where there may not be hope for a long time of Democrats taking power when there are still purple areas you know there are the there are these swingy districts these swingy states where you know going into these places might push some of these people over the edge and uh, you know who are on the fence and where we can actually have a, a better chance at, at kind of gaining power and then you know implementing an agenda that that is more you know the agenda that people are looking for you know it's it's the right question it's a question i asked and 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 we answered it a little differently i feel like there's so many organizations doing amazing work in that space you know red to blue all these groups yeah. that are yeah. in that frame right and i'm like again where can i add value in a you know down a path that that no one's really draw i mean it just and and how can i not also pave over the old cow path so to speak meaning how can we do something a little bit with iteration a little different and, you know, this whole idea of going out and showing up and taking with all due respect, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not holding back on DeSantis in his backyard. I'm just done receiving end of, you know, you know, Jesse Waters or whoever these people are on these. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I'm sitting here and this CRT this and, you know, crying woke about everything. Look, there's a cloud and it's quite woke, woke cloud. I mean, it's insanity. I'm like, so it's it's iteration. I did those ads in Florida. You know, I, you can accuse me of many things, but not being inconsistent. You know, I did those a year and a half or so ago. I did billboards in seven states, 20 billboards on, you know, ca.abortion.gov saying we have your back as it relates to reproductive freedom and rights. I did, you know, ads in Texas. I'm trying to do things through an iterative mindset, see what works, try new communication strategy, uh, getting them on the defensive, not just ours. Because I, 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 how can we not? How can they not be on the defensive? Yeah, I mean, on health and wealth and education, they're failing. I'm in a state at 58 percent higher per capita death rates under COVID. That's freedom. 58 percent higher per capita death rates. Their education system. We outperformed during COVID Florida, the vaunted Florida. We kept our schools open. Really? Well, you know what? You did worse in terms of learning loss in the state of California on three out of four key metrics. 
fourth grade reading, fourth grade math, eighth grade reading, eighth grade math. We outperformed them three out of four. And the one we did, we tied. On issues of crime, we talk about that. On issues related across the spectrum, including economic output, we contracted less in Florida and Texas in the national government. And we expanded in 2021 during the rebound year more than they did. There's a lot of myth out there, a lot of BS. And I don't know, we can't win through the lens of trying to get on Fox and a retort to, you know, Sean Hannity. We yeah. got to go out on the damn road, man. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for, you know, finding all these people who uh, who need some uh, need some representation out there and who are fighting a good fight in places that other Democrats aren't going to. So, Governor Newsom, appreciate you taking the time. Well, I, I appreciate you just doing everything you do every time I see you. So I'm honored to be with you. Thank you, buddy. Now we've got the president of the AFL-CIO, Liz Schuler. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. So the big news here, as far as labor is concerned right now, is that former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz testified before the help committee about union busting tactics uh, related to Starbucks. What was your takeaway from this hearing? I just shook my head the whole time. Uh, it was hard to listen to, frankly, because the testimony was so inaccurate. It was blatantly false most of the time. And I just said, how can you have the audacity to sit before U.S. senators and and tell them, uh, hey, take me at my word. Uh, don't listen to the 7,000 workers at, what is it, over 300 stores now who voted to form a union. Just disregard them, right? So that's what came across to me. I don't think he did himself any favors. Um, and we know that he's violated the law. <laughs> The company has been blatantly union busting. And so to see him testifying and, and essentially showing just disregard um, was really offensive to me. And that's the thing that I'm having trouble reconciling here is that the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, found that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the last 18 months. And yet during this hearing, Howard Schultz maintained throughout the entire thing that Starbucks hasn't broken the law. Am I, am I missing something here? Like, I, I guess, how do you square those two things? Yeah, and they get creative. Right. They say, oh, well, we disagree with what uh, an administrative law judge said or, oh, we're filing an appeal because we don't think they got it right. Um, so how do you get it? How do you not get it right a hundred times? <laughs> <laughs> As they say, where there's uh, smoke, there's fire. Right. right. Um, and so I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that when workers stand up and want to form a union, they want to have their voice heard. They are squelched at every turn, they're fired, they're harassed, they're intimidated. And no matter what Howard Schultz said in that room, we see the evidence and the evidence is mounting that people want to be heard, they wanna be respected and they want a union. One thing that struck me during the hearing was learning about the law firms that Starbucks had retained in order to fight these unionization efforts. And the lawyers that they retained charged rates upwards of 600 bucks an hour is the irony not lost on anyone that Starbucks is willing to pay these massive sums to lawyers all in service of not giving their own baristas a few more dollars or, or the ability to collectively bargain so that they can make a few more dollars? It is so frustrating because you can think about how that money could be used to improve working conditions, to hire more staff, to improve wages and benefits. And in fact, um, the Economic Policy Institute just released a study saying that U.S. companies spent over $400 million, $400 million 
last year on union busting firms. Yeah. It's outrageous. And you, if you could take that money and put it into improving, you know, working conditions and wages for workers, think about what that could do for your bottom line as a business. And not just like workers in the nebulous sense. These are people that are working at your company. This is this is to help your own people, people who are like making you your money. Who showed up during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Came in with their own health at risk to continue to provide a service um, who are working through uh, short staffing where, you know, beverages and food are piling up because customers come in. It's not ready. They leave because the staff is so short handed that they can't keep up with the demand and they're enduring hostile work environments, hostile customers, people who are taking things out on on the workers because management has not uh, taken care of them. Yeah. You know, Starbucks has taken retaliatory action against unionized employees by depriving them of a number of things, including like credit card tips for for one. Has this kind of behavior chilled the unionization movement? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you raised that because what we're seeing is this notion that if you form a union, uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that those um, benefits like tipping aren't associated with with the union. So what they do is reward folks for uh, at non-union stores and say, oh, gosh, we wish we could give that to you at the unionized store. But now that you formed a union, you have to bargain for that which is blatantly false. They can give benefits, wage increases anytime they want, no matter what, right? If we're rising the tide and lifting all boats, you can do that as a company. Um, What we like to do is have a voice and a say in how uh, working conditions and um, technology is used in the workplace, how staffing levels are determined, how hours are determined, um, so that as a worker, you have predictability in your schedule, uh, you can plan your life, you can rely on a consistent source of income. Uh, so we don't think that's too much to ask, but you're right. They are treating um, uh, employees differently depending on if you're at a unionized store. Um, I've heard of um, you know stores being closed if they unionize. Um, we've seen, you know, as we've seen illegal uh, terminations, if you try to form a union, you're fired. Um, certainly the tipping has become an issue. And then also, um, we've seen, uh, uh, changes in healthcare being proposed at some of the unionized stores. So, um, it's clearly a pattern of behavior on behalf of the company following an anti-union playbook. Yeah. Now, how is the unionization movement going more broadly? Because I feel like a year ago, we would get news every single day about a new Starbucks or Apple store being unionized, and I'm not seeing as many right now. So is that a fair read of this, or is it still happening at the same rate and it's just not getting picked up in the news as much? Yeah, it's still happening. Despite all the obstacles that we just talked about, workers are still rising up, showing incredible courage. Um, We just saw that the UAW, uh, the United Auto Workers, won a um election um for graduate workers uh researchers um we have examples of like you said apple stores and um you know folks who um are are rising up in industries that uh, we never thought possible right um certainly video game developers no one ever thought that would be a place where people would unionize but they are being 
um, treated, you know, just like any other workplace, they're struggling with the same things as far as, you know, safety and health and predictable hours and schedules and working overtime. Um, we also saw uh, minor league baseball players, 5,000 of them just come together uh, to join a union and are negotiating a contract right now because the major league players uh, have joined forces with them to lift up conditions and um, and wages and you know benefits for minor league players who were making on average eighteen thousand dollars a year to pursue their dream. Um, so the the action is out there; it's happening. Yeah. Um, but certainly, um, you know, companies will do everything they can to stop it. What about some of these industries that are historically like rife with abuse? I was watching a more perfect union uh, expose the other day about sex workers. And like, what what about those kind of industries where those protections are so desperately needed because it's not just an issue of finances is also an issue of, of their own safety and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. We always say that there is no industry off limits for forming a union. That is the uh, freedom to come together collectively is enshrined in our labor laws. And in fact, not many people realize that that is the baseline we start from, that people should be able to form unions. It's not the opposite where we should fight to prove that we're worthy of forming a union. It's that we should be able to form it. And then, you know, the law should protect us and be proactive to help workers form unions. Yeah. Right now, the laws are so broken, though, and, and have been tilted toward companies that it makes it more difficult, as we know. Um, but no matter what industry you're in, especially in, in industries, as you mentioned, that are, um, you know, facing um, work environments that are unsafe, um, where they need the protection of a collective voice, where they feel on their own and, um, you know, without protection. Those are the, the types of work that need unions because coming together collectively gives you more power. It gives you the ability to sit across the table from your employer and actually, um, you know, talk about the challenges you face. And it's different depending on the job you do. But that's the beauty of a union is it's flexible. And um, you get to decide what are the issues that you really want to talk about and negotiate in your contract. So I guess all of this raises the question in that a lot of these companies view anti-union behavior and the fines that they incur from it as just a cost of doing business. So how do we fix that? Yeah, I wish that I could sit down with someone like Howard Schultz and say, you know what? Unions are not what you think they are. There's an old stereotype. There's a, a misperception that for some reason you think, oh, having a union is going to destroy your business. Um, when in fact, we see examples, I come out of the electrical industry and, you know, we have a long history of where th when the employer does well, the workers do well and everybody wins. And the union then is a partner in making the business more successful because when they're fairly compensated and listened to and respected, they work, you know, productivity goes up. They they want to work hard and make the business more successful. So we have tons of examples of, you know, that model working well. And in particular, globally, we see that, um, you know, in other countries. Uh, so I think the notion of approaching this as a hostile environment to, to operate in, that you bust unions at all costs, oh, it's just a cost of doing business, is the absolute wrong way to approach this. And in fact, we 
See, uh, with Microsoft, for example, where their company said, you know what? If workers want to form a union, we're going to stand by. We're not going to interfere. We're going to remain neutral. And we want our employees to be able to make that decision free from intimidation and harassment. Yeah. So they've taken the opposite posture. And so far, so good because workers have felt free, you know, to come together. And they they have, um, you know, in, in the video gaming sector, decided that's what they wanted. So um, I think that we should be actually educating these businesses, like, don't be led astray by these union busting firms, you need to stand up and, and recognize that listening to your employees is actually good for business. Well, and of course, there are going to be plenty of these businesses that don't take such a welcoming approach to what you just said. And so obviously, legislation is needed. So can you talk about the PRO Act and what it would do? Absolutely. And thanks for raising it because the Protecting the Right to Organize Act uh, is the legislation that we worked with Congress to introduce um, that's been um, actually in the hopper now for several years. But um, we, we keep pushing for it because labor laws are so broken. They've been chipped away at over many years and tilted in favor of corporations um, over time. And so it takes an act of courage to form a union because, you know, employers will come at you with everything they have, as we've seen with Starbucks and, you know, in so many places. And you're right. The default is always to fight a union, not welcome a union. Yeah. So um, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act would um, level the playing field. Um, it would actually institute real penalties uh, and for employers who break the law, like Starbucks, uh, and hold them accountable for violating workers' rights um, and would actually help speed up the process to get them to the table to actually negotiate a contract. And that's what's the most frustrating thing about Starbucks is you have over 300 stores that have, have voted to unionize, but Starbucks refuses to come to the bargaining table to negotiate a contract because there are no meaningful penalties there are no consequences. And that's very dispiriting to working people who have risked it all and um, were so hopeful that they could have a voice. And now they just need that contract so that they have that place at the table to make meaningful change. Um, so it's really empowering workers. Um, it's, you know, securing free, fair, safe union elections. Uh, uh, you know, the PRO Act would help that by preventing employers from interfering um, and holding these captive audience meetings, which they do with impunity as well, where they bring everybody into a room and, and make them listen to anti-union propaganda. Um, and it would promote transparency. And so we think, you know, long term, we'll keep fighting for the PRO Act. But in the meantime, um, workers are continuing to rise up and make their voices heard and continue to, to organize despite the obstacles. Well, with that said, what is the appetite in Congress based on your experience for getting this passed? And, and is there any opposition along, along party lines and, and why would that be? Yeah, I think it, it very much is along party lines because it's a philosophy uh, that, you know, Republicans view unions as a threat. Um, they think of us as a democratic institution aligned with the Democratic Party when in fact we are a worker organization that we represent working people and we support elected officials who support working people regardless of party. It just right. so, so, so if, if there's no support for Republicans, that's not 
what that says is basically more about where Republicans put their allegiances than where you guys put your allegiances. Absolutely. If you're going to vote to protect working people, we support you. Yeah. Uh, the voting records speak for themselves. And so over time, the party leadership has decided to go in a completely different direction. There are some Republicans who are waking up to the fact that working people really are where the power is. Um, and so you've seen some Republicans try to shift their positioning as far as unions go. But for the most part, uh, Democrats believe in working people being able to have a voice to, you know, come together and negotiate better wages and conditions and have health care and paid sick leave in, in contracts that hold employers accountable and, and really balance the scales. Uh, because as we know, inequality has been growing in our country. And the only way that we can actually um, start reversing that trend is for working people to have more power, to come together collectively and to demand more together. And that's through a union. Perfectly put. We'll leave it there. Liz Schuler, thank you so much for taking the time and for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Liz. One quick note, if you're new here and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and throw me a review. All that stuff helps. Okay, that's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out BrianTylerCohen.com for links to all of my other channels.